0: is coming soon. Soon. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that there will be a coalition of nations that gather on the northern border of Israel and God is going to put a hook in their jaw and draw them down out of the north. If we go back to the table of nations, we can understand the geographic regions that these nations that are represented there by the names in Genesis chapter 10 and where they are geographically located today. God says that Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, is going to lead an invasion. And Persia and Libya and beth Togarma are going to be with them. Persia is modern-day Iran. Libya is modern-day Libya. That was an easy one. Magog is often interpreted as being Russia, but actually Magog is the southern steppes of Russia in Portions of the world that we would know as Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Russia is actually Rosh. And the leader of Rosh is a character in Scripture called Gog. And the Lord is going to put a hook in his mouth and draw him down out of the north. And he is going to lead an invasion into the nation of Israel from the northern border of Israel. And what country is on the northern border of Israel? Syria. And as we sit here tonight, Gog The prince of Rosh, in other words, the leader of Russia, his military is in Syria right now. Guess who's with him? Persia. Two weeks ago, mercenaries from the southern steppes of Russia, hundreds of them were sent into Syria on the northern border of Israel once again. Also, we see a connection now being made between the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal or the head of Russia, Now, working in cooperation with the northern nations in Africa, that being Libya, Algeria, and also the Sudan are named under the names of the descendants of Noah, recorded in Genesis chapter 10. Now, why is this important? Because God says, when I draw you down, when I put hooks in your jaw and turn you around and draw you down from the north, I'm going to lead you into an invasion of Israel and I'm going to deal with you there. And five, six of the invading armies are going to be destroyed when they invade Israel, as well as the homelands of these military invading coalition armies. Now, the reason that this is important and the reason that we can say Jesus is coming soon, and Jesus is coming soon, is because Russia, Persia, Libya, all these nations, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Pakistan... All these nations have one thing in common. They share a common ideology except for Russia. And the number of Muslims in Russia is growing dramatically by leaps and bounds. And Russia is in fear of the same thing that other countries in Europe are in fear of. And that is the Muslim invasion that is going to take over their country as well. But here's the interesting thing. When God draws them down out of the north, the Lord says, I'm going to cause a great earthquake in Israel. So much so that the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all peoples on the earth are going to see something radical, so radical that they'll know it's me and I'll be glorified in the eyes of Israel. And the other thing he's going to employ employ are hailstones of fire, fire and brimstone. So in other words, when the coalition forces led by Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, are drawn down out of the north to invade the nation of Israel, God is going to call down fire on them and destroy those nations. Now, here's the interesting thing. That's tribulation stuff. Think about what happened during the Nazi invasion of Europe and the execution of some 6 million Jews. Think about what happened when China was executing Christians and Russia as well. Think about the number who have died. Have we seen God pour down fire from the sky? No, we haven't. But we know that during the tribulation period, it is the 70th week of Daniel and God is going to defend according to Zechariah. It says he's going to fight as he fights all the nations that invaded Israel. And you know how God fights? Look at the plagues in Egypt. That's how God fights. He doesn't need nuclear weapons. He uses comets and asteroids and earthquakes. He shakes the earth. And therefore, if this coalition of nations that has already formed right now and is on the northern border of Israel right now and is going to be destroyed during the tribulation, there's only one conclusion. Jesus is coming soon. Amen. And therefore, we need to look up for our redemption is nigh. Amen? Amen. Guys, open your Bibles this evening to Psalm chapter 111. Psalm 111. And 11. Now this psalm isn't assigned the title a psalm of David, but there is a practice among rabbis and a traditional method of examining books like the psalms where there's a series of authors and that is the last author named is the author until a new author is named and David is clearly the author of Psalm 110. And there are those who believe that this is a post-exilic psalm, that it was written after the Babylonian captivity and the return of of Judah to Jerusalem. And there's really no internal or external evidence for that particular understanding. But what we do know is there's a lesson for us today from this particular Psalm. Having understood that it's time for us to man up and knowing what a man is, is critical to doing and living according to what God has planned for us. We looked at that from Psalm 1 this morning. And we know that when indeed we are having made the decision to live for God, having made the decision to live full throttle for Him, that we're going to at times be pushed to the outer limits. And life is going to be tough sometimes. But God's going to be there with us. Amen? Amen? And He will never leave us nor forsake us. So now understanding the nearness of the Lord's return, the proximity being very near, That he could come at any moment, and at any moment the last trump could blow that signals the end of the church age, and you and I could be caught up forever to meet the Lord and be with him in the air. In a twinkling of an eye, this is going to happen. In a split second, less than a nanosecond, we're going to be out of here. And may I remind you that the the great escape precedes the great tribulation. And the Lord is going to come get us, and we're going to forever be with him. So what do we do in light of that as men of God? knowing that the return of the Lord is imminent. You know, Paul loved to use uh, athletic metaphors. He loved to use uh, boxing metaphors and running metaphors and Olympic metaphors. And we see these types of things incorporated continually in his writings. And he even at the end of his day, said that he had run his race with endurance. And the time of his race was about end. ended. Well, let me ask you, if you're a distance runner, what happens when you near the finish line? You save up a little for the kick, right? So you finish hard when the end is near. Guys, we've got to finish hard. And there are things that we need to understand from this particular psalm tonight about not only how close we are to the return of the Lord and the imminency of the rapture is, all, uh, rapture is always present, but the signs are all around us. No, we don't know the day or the hour, but Jesus gave the most detailed answer to any question asked of him when two sets of brothers came and said, Hey, what are the signs of your return? And the longest answer Jesus gave in the Bible is called the Olivet Discourse, where he went into great detail about what's going to be going on in the world as the world moves toward the tribulation period through the normal course of life and a fallen world events that happen in that uh, increasing frequency and intensity that we talked about here this morning. And he said, you know, no man knows the day or the hour, but I'll tell you what, when you see these things begin to come to pass, look up for your redemption is night did i mention jesus is coming soon i thought i might have now the pairing of the two psalms psalm 111 and 112 as both wisdom psalms is a practice in the psalms that there are often themes that span from one psalm to another and it is important to note that this psalm doesn't really give us any historical backdrop we don't really know the situation oftentimes we can discern what david was writing about He would write about when he had to feign madness in gath in a Philistine city. Think about this. In David, in his travels and on the run, because he was often betrayed by people, he winds up in the city of Gath, which was Goliath's hometown, and he's carrying Goliath's sword. That'd be a tough situation to be in, wouldn't it? So what did David do? He acted like he was crazy. He slobbered all over his beard and he's scratching and clawing on the gate. And the king of gas said, get this nut out of here. What do I need another madman in the city for? So we often can discern what the backdrop is of any particular Psalm, but that's not the case with these particular Psalms 111 and 112. However, it is important for us to note that in these two wisdom Psalms, Psalm 111 gives us a set of instructions and Psalm 112 gives us the benefits of following them. And this is important for us to note because as we have alluded to, there seems to be a trend in the church today to go straight to the benefits and skip over the obedience. And I have to say, I would rather experience the benefits of obedience than just read about them. I wanna be blessed up, not messed up. How about you? (laughs) And therefore, you cannot experience the blessings of chapter 11 unless you follow the instructions, or chapter 112, unless you follow the instructions of 111. Now, 119, 160 of the Psalms reminds us that the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Now, I believe that it is possible that the Holy Spirit left off any inference to the historical backdrop of this psalm, so that you and I as later readers would not be bound by historical context, but we can understand that this is not restricted to what happened at that moment and the application therefore would apply to you and I, and therefore the instructions and coinciding benefits you and I are free to appropriate. Now, in other words, to use a modern analogy, what we're gonna to read tonight, you can take to the bank. You can believe that it applies to you, figuratively speaking. You can count on it, You can believe in it, you can act on it, and you can rest in it because the wisdom of this psalm is still true today. Now our closing verse tonight of 111 is going to say that there is wisdom found in fearing the Lord. Then chapter 112 opens with, in verse 1, Praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments. So we see the benefits immediately being stated in 112 of obeying the words of 111. Now, both Psalms begin with the Hebrew phrase, Halal Yah. And Yah being the contracted form of Jehovah. And the words are a vow to praise Jehovah, no matter what. Praise the Lord when things are good, and praise the Lord when they're not so good. Because, listen, guys, we don't praise the Lord because our circumstances are good. We praise the Lord because He is good. And He is good when times are bad. He is good when times are tough. He is good our whole experience in the outer limits when our faith is being pushed to the brink. God is still good. And this being a wisdom psalm which opens with a vow to praise the Lord gives us that first lesson that it's wise to halal Yah no matter what's going on in your life. It is always wise to praise the Lord. Now our title tonight is a bit of a clarion call in light of how we set our time together up from Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's a call for us to remember that the wisdom of God's word defines how we are to live our lives. And to some degree, it's going to reveal to all of us tonight. And here's the title of our session, The Time Has Come. The time has come is what we're going to look at here tonight. And our text is going to tell us that wisdom is birthed out of fearing the Lord. And accessing the blessings of fearing the Lord are predicated on doing the things that we read today today and are read today, rather, in our previous Psalms, not simply being aware of their presence in scripture, but actually doing them. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Proverbs 1130 says, "'The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, "'and he who wins souls is wise.'" The awareness that souls are perishing is knowledge. Leading people to Jesus is wisdom because wisdom is applied knowledge. For what we know is irrelevant if we fail to act on it. It doesn't matter what you understand if you don't act upon the things that are written and the instructions that are given. And then our time tonight has a high probability of being convicting. You okay with that? Well, it doesn't matter if you're okay with it or not. It's coming anyway. (laughs) But here's why. Because you'll never be convinced of what you're not convicted by. And unless you are convicted and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you are never going to feel the urgency to bring about change in your life for that it's time to change or that improvements are in order. Now, let me level the playing field. Could we all do better at serving God? Okay, well, then this is true for all of us. This is not one of those messages where you know somebody who really needs to hear it. You're the one who really needs to hear it. I'm the one who really needs to hear it. Amen? So what we're going to find out tonight is how we can up our game. And the time has become, or time has come rather, to do so because, to be honest, we're running out of it. The Lord could come at any moment. And since our psalm opens with a vow to praise the Lord, we're going to find three things that we too should vow or commit to, knowing that the time has come to do so, and we're running out of it quickly. The first of our three vows is found in the first four verses. So read together with me, please. Psalm 111, verses 1 through 4. The opening words, again, remember in Hebrew, is halal yah. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord half heartedly. No. I will praise the Lord how? With my whole heart. Where? In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great. Studied by all who have pleasure in them, his work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And God, again, we enlist your aid tonight via your spirit. And once again, we ask that you would touch the ears of the hearer that we might understand and know and embrace and do that which your spirit is saying to the church tonight. We give you thanks in advance for your matchless word the entirety of it being truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, the first thing to note is the first thing said. I will praise the Lord with my what? Whole Whole heart. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Now, the word assembly means company and upright means straight. And I thought this almost comical because if you read it directly from the Hebrew, it would say, I, would praise the, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the company of straight people. <laughs> you can file that under the category of things that make you go, hmm. But however, what this means is that we vow to praise the Lord in the company of friends and the congregational gathering. It is why we come together. And you know, the time of worship we had and all the worship times, that, you know, I just wish Andy would get a little more excited about worship. But you know, our musical worship is not simply a buffer to give us time to get seated and our thoughts in order before the message. It's a time of preparation. Do you know, as we look at the Old Testament, God would send out the trumpeters and singers before the army of the Lord. And that would make ready the people of God. If you look at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, it tells us that when the trumpeters and the singers were in one accord, worshiping and praising God, that the glory of the Lord filled the temple with smoke, so much so that the, people, or the priests could not minister. And in 2 Chronicles 6.1 says, then Solomon spoke. I've always told worship teams, this is how we understand worship. You come out as a worship team and you prepare the people to receive the word so that their hearts are ready to understand the importance of praising God and knowing that his word is going to find a home in the heart that is ready and prepared through praise. We need to praise the Lord all the time, amen? Amen. Even if life gets down to what we talked about earlier, even if the only thing we have to hang on to is that we're not going to hell. Listen, I am excited about not going to hell. I think that's awesome. I love that part of my salvation. You guys know who David Hawking is? I know a lot of you guys uh, have heard him. David, a tremendous uh, teacher of the word. First time we ever met him some years ago, we were speaking at the same event. And David, And if you know David, he's got this massive voice. He's a massive person. He's a big dude. But he's got this huge, deep voice that carries for miles whenever he speaks. And uh, so David comes up and... Uh, we introduced ourselves to one another. And he says, how you doing? And I said, better than I deserve. And he said, well, you deserve hell. <laughs> right back at you, bro. <laughs> but you know what? It, it really took me back for a moment because the thing that I began to understand is that in Jesus, no, I don't. Not anymore because I'm not getting snuck into heaven. I'm walking in, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And heaven is my right, heaven is my expectation now, not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but I have received the gift of God, which is eternal life, which I received by grace through faith. And therefore I'm excited about not going to hell and I'm gonna praise the Lord just for that. Because I know more than David Hawking knows that that is the place I deserve to go with all that has happened in my life in the past. But God isn't dealing with me according to my past. He's dealing with me according to the presence of Christ in me. And I have been crucified, and I now live for him, as Galatians 2.20 says. Now. Revelation 19:4 to 5 says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying amen hallelujah and then a voice came from the throne saying praise our God all you servants and those who fear him both small and great and praise in heaven is commanded that everyone is to praise God the small and great of the earth for God is worthy of praise now we also need to note something rather interesting in our text. And that we find the last possessive pronoun that applies to the author and reader in, in the word I. Everything else that we find in this particular passage is going to be he and his. He and his. He and his. Because this tells us that he and his that's in view is God. And he is the object of our praise. The word I appears one time. The word Lord appears five times. He Appears six times. His appears nine times. This is about the greatness of God that is in view in front of us here this evening. And verse 2 says, The great works of the Lord are studied by all who have pleasure in them. And the Hebrew word studied can also be translated frequented. And pleasure can be translated or take pleasure can be translated as desire. And what that means is we can rightfully read from the Hebrew that this text tells us this. The works of the Lord are great, frequented by all who desire them. I want God to move frequently in my life, don't you? I want to see his hand on my life. And I'm going to get up close and personal here for a moment, so buckle up, put on your steel-toed flip-flops. There are a lot of Christians today who complain about the amount of sex and violence on their DVR. I knew that would take a minute to land. There's a lot of Christians today who complain about the amount of sex and violence in the movies they watch. There's a lot of wonderful Christian parents today whose children are involved in sports. Who have tournaments and games on Sunday. Who worry about their children drawing the conclusion that sports are more important than church. And that's a valid concern. But here's the thing, men. There are more professing Christians in the United States of America than any other special interest group by far. Now get this. If just the Christians quit watching filthy movies, Hollywood would quit making them because they're all about money. And if just the Christians would get out of line at dirty movies that are inappropriate for their eyes, it would change the whole scheme of entertainment today. If just the Christians would do that. Listen, when I was a kid, I played three sports. I ran track, I played baseball, and I played football, and not once did I ever have a game on Sunday. And if Christians a bit upstream from us today would have said the first time Sunday sports was introduced as a possibility, if they would have just said, you know what? Sunday's the day We meet with the congregation to praise the Lord and remember God's work by studying His Word. Christian parents wouldn't be faced with the difficulties that they are today in wanting their children to play sports, which I think is great, but I don't think they ought to be playing on Sunday. Well, it took a minute, but you got there. I don't think they ought to be playing on Sunday. We need to set aside a day to worship God, amen? Amen. And listen, we need to understand... The urgency in being more frequent at desiring honorable, glorious, righteous, and wonderful works that the Lord has done. And that translates into this, man. Listen. The time has come for God's men to make His kingdom their top priority. The time has come for God's men to make His kingdom their top priority. Our gracious and compassionate God made his wonderful works to be remembered and instituted the corporate gathering of believers for the purpose of them doing so collectively together. Now people like to say today, you don't have to go to church to worship God. That's in second opinions. That's not in the Bible, is it? It is true. You can worship God anywhere. Remember, the word worship means to prostrate and submit. We are to prostrate and submit to the will of God everywhere we go. We are to praise God when we sing to him and of his glorious works. But God wants his works to be remembered. He recorded them in his word, and he says in Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake the gathering together with other believers, as is the custom of some. And you know what else he says? He says, and I'm paraphrasing here in Hebrews 10.25, listen, when you can see that Jesus is coming soon, you need to be in church a lot because you're going to need one another, because you're going to need to encourage one another, because life is going to get tougher and tougher, and the number of Christians is going to be fewer and fewer, yet they're going to have the same task of preaching the gospel to every creature that was commissioned when the church was first born. Now, In Leviticus 8, 2-5, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as the sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. That's always a good idea. And the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and Moses said to the congregation, This is what The Lord commanded us to do. God wants his people gathered together. He wants them gathered together for the purpose of reviewing the wonderful works that he has done together. He wants him to call the mind and declare in the midst of the congregation the praises of almighty God. And for those who may be thinking Leviticus records the law of God and we're not under the law, does that mean that being in the age of grace, we don't need to know what God has commanded? or that we don't need to remember the wonderful things that he has done? Are you thankful for your salvation today? Isn't it a tremendous thing to think that the God of heaven, the creator of all things, the giver of life, the one who has promised such a wonderful and glorious eternal inheritance has offered to us forgiveness of all sin. Man, that's good stuff. And God has given to his people the responsibility to be salt and light in the world. And that requires putting his kingdom first and leaving the rest up to him, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Do you know how that verse is set up? Jesus said, don't worry about stuff. Don't worry about the stuff the Gentiles are always worked up about. What do we eat? What will we drink? What'll we wear? He gave the illustration. You know, God feeds the birds. And of how much more value are you than that? Don't you think he's going to take care of your basic necessities so you can spend your life seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And listen, I'm not trying to say, pack your bags, we're going on a guilt trip to anybody here tonight. I'm just saying the time has come to right our thinking and to reprioritize our lives. Listen, God has saved me. From horrendous sin. God restored my marriage when it was absolutely impossible for that to happen. After all that I did to my wife, she hated me with a passion. She never wanted to see me again. And then all of a sudden, one day, after months and months of trying to find her, trying to connect with her, calling her mom's house, trying to do anything to get a hold of her, to tell her I loved her, and I wanted her back, and I'm sorry I'll do anything to get you back. And she never took my call, and all of a sudden... I get a phone call and it's her. And she says, I went to church last night. My sister took me. And the pastor gave an invitation and I gave my life to Jesus. Listen. And he said, I needed to tell somebody. So I thought I'd tell you. And divorce papers are still on the way. But God. God through a series of amazing events. She lost her job. The man she worked for started hitting on her. She refused his advances. He fired her and all of a sudden she needed me again. And I will tell you something I will never forget, ever forget as long as I live what it was like to see her and my now two-year-old little girl after eight months. I remember what her hair smelled like. I remember the brown corduroy skirt and the matching jacket and the white blouse that she was wearing. I remember her standing on the curb after I saw her get out of the car and come to where I was standing. The scene plays out in my mind over and over and over. But you know what? I had dealt treacherously with the wife of my youth. And I had no right to ever expect her to come back to me. But God, man, I'm going to praise God. When uh, life is tough, I'm going to praise the Lord. He's given me so much more than I could ever deserve. And it just keeps coming. You know, one of the things that I always look back on, one of the things that I think about constantly is the fact that if my wife and I had not gotten back together, we would have never had a son who gave us our first three grandkids. And let me tell you, I'm a killer grandpa. They eat ice cream for breakfast and cake for lunch. They get whatever they want. All they got to do is say, Papa. The answer is yes whatever the question the answer is yes because at the end of the day sugared up and hyped up you're going home (laughs) I love being a papa and I would have missed all that but God even when even in the midst of my tragic mistakes let me point back to what we talked about a few minutes ago concerning entertainment Pastor Chuck's wife Kay Smith said something that just rattled my cage years ago She said, how can we entertain ourselves with the sins that Jesus died for? How can we entertain ourselves with the sins that Jesus died for? great preacher you guys need to get in connection with on YouTube, a man named Leonard Ravenhill. He said, entertainment is a devil's substitute for joy. That's exactly what it is. So let me ask you, do some Christians watch things they ought not to? The time has come to stop doing that. Are sports more important for your children than church? No, of course not. I know you don't feel that way or believe that, even though you may love sports and some are seeing their children excel at those things. But the fact is we have the knowledge. We know the right thing. So it's a time to act on those things. And you know, we need to say and stand up in these last days and be radical for the Lord. Man, we may not think that things like this matter. Well, let me ask you, Is our nation getting better? Not at all. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And I can assure you that the reason our nation is getting worse is because man's desires are being frequented more than remembering God's works. And man is putting himself above God. The time has come for that to stop. We need to make God's work our top priority. We need to live for him in all that we do. And for those who may be thinking, well, God is my top priority. Well, let me remind all of us, that's proven by our actions, not our feelings, thoughts, and words. You can have wonderful thoughts and feelings towards God, but what does your life say? I mean, that's what people are actually going to read. And it's like the old ad is Christians are the only Bible some people may ever read. And therefore we need to show that God is our top priority in all that we do. Now listen, I do wish things were different. And I do love sports. And I do understand wanting your boy to play Little League and your girl to play soccer. But you know what? The most important thing that your boy and girl need is Jesus. And for him to be treated in your home like he is a top priority above all things. Listen, we, when my son was in high school, we turned down some things that his coach wanted him to do and said, no, it ain't going to happen. Not on Sunday. He's not going to travel. He's going to miss that game. Now, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't real popular with my son there for a while. But I wasn't trying to be popular with my son. I was trying to be his dad and lead him in the right direction. It reminds me of the story of an old farmer who, one of the farmers in the fields next to him, and they were both raising corn. And here on Saturday, his boys, this one farmer had four sons. While all the other boys were in the water tank swimming, this guy's sons were still out there harvesting the corn. And the farmer next to him had said, you know, the corn can wait till tomorrow. What are your boys out doing out there working so hard? And the farmer said, I'm not raising corn, I'm raising boys. And everybody else may be out there goofing off, but I'm raising my boys and training them in the way that they ought to go. And men, these are our responsibilities today. The time has come for God's men to make God's word and work their top priority. Somebody say amen. 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 Look at verses five through eight. The psalmist goes on, likely again, King David, and says, he has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast for how long? forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. And the author is sending the minds of the readers of this poem back to the wanderings of the Israelites and the provision of manna from heaven. And their minds are pointed back to the faithfulness of God, to his covenant promises, and it directs the reader to the power he displayed in places like Jericho. And when he made the sun stand still over Gibeon so Joshua could finish With his army, the conquest of the five kings of the Amorites, as he was giving a heritage to the nation of the nations to his chosen people. And the author takes him to the pinnacle of the acrostic here in verse 7, where he says, The works of his hands are verity and justice, and all of his precepts are sure. Verity means truth or reliable. Precepts are mandates or commandments, and then we are told they are sure. this means that they are permanent, and figuratively it means that they are morally certain and immutable or unchanging. Acts 19:13 to 20 says some itinerant Jewish exorcist took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, "We exorcise you by the Jews, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Siva. How is that for a tongue twister? A Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Now listen close. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now get this. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You know, the seven sons of Siva were using Jesus' name, but they didn't know Jesus. And we know they didn't know Jesus because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And the devil does not have the power to overpower us. Because we can quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. We can do all to stand even in the evil day. The demon world does not have power over you and I. We have power over them. But our power is directly related to knowing, living by, and proclaiming the truth. And listen, guys, here's the next clarion call for you and me. The time has come for the men of the church to tell the world the whole truth about God. The time has come for the men of the church to tell the world the whole truth about God. Acts 19 says, Fear fell on all the people, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Can fear fall on people without hearing something fearful? Hardly. And what they heard was so powerful. And when the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, the sorcerers of the day brought their books to be burned and the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let me ask you, whose kingdom is growing by leaps and bounds today? Are there mass burnings of pornographic materials in our cities? No. How about bonfires made of drugs and drug paraphernalia? No, not seeing that either, are we? Is there repentance from sorceries in the streets? No, not seeing that. But listen, what happens when the name of Jesus is magnified and the word of God grows mightily and prevailed, and when the word of God is not watered down, compromised, or approached with a cut-and-paste preaching method into some powerless, sin-protecting blob of silliness, the kingdom of darkness is going to grow and prevail. And the word cannot advance its cause. And men, listen. The power of the church is in the word rightly divided. Not watered down. Not compromised to accommodate society. And the truth is there are too many preachers today who have deleted hell, repentance, and the fear of the Lord from their sermons. Those are biblical doctrines. Amen? Amen. C.H. Virgin said the church's job is to feed the sheep, not entertain the goats. In Luke 12, 4-5, Luke writes, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, Jesus speaking, and have no right and have no more that, that they can do. But I will show you, Jesus speaking again, did you catch that? Jesus is speaking, and he says, I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, Fear Him. You know what? This is what a loving person says to their unsaved friends. Fear God who has the power to cast into hell. Say to them, fear Him. Now when hell is not preached, the fear of the Lord is not possible. And some may think, well that's harsh. People don't like to hear that. As if people in the past used uh, used to like to hear that they're sinners. And that they're going to hell. Nobody's ever liked that. But it's always been true, right? The wages of sin is death, death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we're so concerned about other people's feelings today and all this talk about relationship evangelism and building bridges. And this has gone even to the place where there are many today who are saying, you know what, you need to crack a couple of beers with your neighbor so they can see that you're just a normal guy. And then share the gospel with them. Listen, that's garbage, by the way. If you were on a ship and someone fell overboard, would you refrain from throwing them a life preserver because you were worried it might hit them in the face? Or would you ask them, how do you feel about life preservers? you have an opinion about them. I, I don't want to do anything to offend you by throwing you a life preserver when they're against your belief system. Would you do any of those things? No. You would take the radical steps and necessary steps in order to offer them a way to be saved, to be kept from drowning. And the same is true with the message that we have today. And it's only the truth of God's word that can make people free and save them from hell. And he who the son sets free is what? free indeed and when the sun makes you free you're going to be free actually free listen I shared with you before man I had some troubles with booze and when I gave my life back to the Lord when I went over to Calvary Costa Mesa and I was raised in a, a denomination that believed you could use your, lose your salvation. And I thought if anybody lost it, it was me. Because I gave my life to Jesus when I was 12 years old after reading The Late Great Planet Earth. And I was on fire for Him up until I took my first drink at 16. And the next thing I knew, I was 25 and divorced. And my life was a shambles. But man, I drank. And I drank hard and I drank heavy. I did all kinds of drugs. And the fact is, and, and now here, this is just an idea to tell you how smart I was back then. I've had asthma since I was six years old. So I took up smoking to cure it. <laughs> smart, huh? But let me tell you something. After smoking for almost 10 years, I put them down in one day. I put them down and never picked them up again. And after all the drugs I did and the manners and the delivery systems that I used to get them into my body, that all stopped in one day. But it took me four years to quit drinking. And I fell and got up, I fell and got up. I loved God, I wanted to serve God. I was fighting hard for my sobriety and then finally I cried out to God after another slip up and I never went back to the way I was before. I never abused my wife again and there were none of those things that ever happened again. But after another fall, after another pint of black velvet went down my esophagus, I said, Lord, aren't you ever going to help me? And you know what he said? And I'm not saying I heard him audibly, but I heard it in my spirit. You know what he said to me? I I said, Lord, aren't you going to ever help me? He said, "I already did." You're the one that keeps drinking, <laughs> and I never took another drink again. Never picked up the bottle again. Yeah. And you know, you know what I'm saying here tonight. <laughs> Sometimes you got to fight for your freedom, but once you have it, you're free indeed. And I've been free ever since. You know, I went to uh, some of you guys that have been around for a while. May have seen some commercials on TV. They probably had them in Southern California, maybe not over here. There was a place called Raleigh Hills Hospital that practiced aversion therapy. Well, let me tell you what aversion therapy is. You go to bed. They come grab you physically out of bed, violently out of bed, drag you down the hallway, slam your body into a chair, throw a stainless steel salad bowl this big in your lap, shoot you in the hip, with a shot to close off your intestine and then start shoving booze down your face as fast as they can. The night before, they put out a hot plate and they open all your favorite beers and set them on there so they're nice and warm with this oozy yellow goo coming out of the top of the can and they pour them down your throat, one after the other after the other. And if you don't fill up that stainless steel bowl in your lap, then they get the stomach pump, which is on the counter, and they go get it. Because if your intestine opens up with all that booze in you, you're dead in a second. This therapy, by the way, is illegal now, but I went through it. (laughs) And you know what? The last thing that they did was they made you drink a glass of lukewarm water, which is absolutely disgusting. I stopped drinking for 365 days. Mm And then I started drinking again after my Raleigh Hills experience. To this day, I still can't drink warm water. But you know what cured me? Jesus. Jesus cured me. What Raleigh Hills Hospital couldn't do, Jesus did. And he set me free. And listen... I want to live a life that says, thank you, God, every day of my life. I don't want to drag his name through the mud. I don't want to be like David and have to make the confession that my actions have given the enemies of God the opportunity to blaspheme because of how I have lived my life and the sins that I have incorporated into my life. I want to live for God full throttle. What say you? Acts 16:16 16, 16 to 19 says it happened as we went to prayer, a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that the hope of their prophet was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And we could spend hours unraveling all that's here in this exchange. But for our purposes tonight, let me just say this. The woman was telling the truth. But yet she wasn't free. Those men were servants of the Most High God. And she recognized that. But she did not enjoy the freedom that they did. And look at the difference in the encounter between the seven sons of Siva and the Apostle Paul. He was successful at the exorcism, if you will, and cast the demon out of that girl. And she came out that very hour because Paul spoke with a voice of authority and that authority was the Holy Spirit. And it's time for the men of the church to get annoyed at the devil. It's time for us to quit allowing him the leeway that he has in our world and in our homes and in our schools. And Lynn, listen, yes, God is love. Amen? Amen. God is love. And yes, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's a verse many non-believers can quote. But we need to finish the story for them. We need to tell them the whole truth about God. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. It didn't need to be condemned. It needed to be saved. So God sent a Savior into the world in the person of His own Son. Now, a lot of people today like to say, under the umbrella of universalism, that there is no hell. Well, if there is no hell, then what exactly are we saved from? You have to be saved from something, don't you? Bad hair days? What are we saved from? We are saved from a devil's hell. And I'm thankful for that, and you should be too. And the time has come for the church to tell the whole truth about God, including the fact that our God, according to Hebrews, is a consuming fire. He is radical. He is awesome in power. And he is to be feared in the sense that the Bible teaches it, meaning reverent awe of his majesty and his greatness. God is amazing, isn't he? Look at verses 9 and 10. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments, his praise endures. How long? Forever. Forever. Now, at least for the purposes of our time tonight and examining this beautiful poem, we might paraphrase this as saying wisdom is accessed by fearing the Lord. In James 3, 13-17, James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then is peaceable, gentle, Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. You know, a lot of people like to say today, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in the church. Can you think of a better place for a hypocrite? I'm glad they're in church, aren't you? As if there's none in the world. Now, why would one concern themselves with showing good conduct? The fear of the Lord. Envy and self-seeking does not access for us the wisdom from above, for those things are evil, the Bible says. And is our world better described as envious and self-seeking or filled with good conduct? Envious and self-seeking. That's a better description of our world today, isn't it? So what's the missing ingredient? The fear of the Lord. But applying the knowledge of God's will... Uh, God's word rather, will lead us to pure wisdom which manifests itself in these kind of people. Peaceable people. Gentle people. People who are willing to yield. People who are full of mercy because they've experienced it themselves. Good fruits are going to be part of their lives. They're not going to be a partial people and they'll be people without hypocrisy. And the fear of the Lord bursts a good understanding in those who do God's commandments. But accessing pure wisdom from above is only because of verse 9. God sent his son to redeem his people. And his commanded covenant is forever because holy and awesome is his name. You know, there's a lot of people who say redemption or deliverance can be found through this religion or that particular school of thought. Nirvana can be reached, a higher state of consciousness achieved. Some say there are paths to enlightenment, spiritual healing through meditation, and Eastern religions. And some today who claim to be a part of the church even say they're healers who've been anointed by God. But there's one thing in verse 9 that creates a distinction from all those things. It says, he, Jehovah, sent redemption to his people. The people didn't redeem themselves through higher states of consciousness. They didn't redeem themselves through arriving at nirvana. God actually did the redeeming work. Now, why is that significant? Because redemption represents the finished work of Christ on the cross. Unlike other belief system and practices, God sent a redeemer who actually did redeem us. God sent a healer who actually healed us. God sent a deliverer who actually delivered us. God sent a provider who actually provides for us. God sent a Savior who actually saves us. And listen, saints, here's the last of our conclusions for the day. The time has come for God's men to walk in the fullness of their calling. The time has come for God's men to walk in the fullness of their calling. Paul said this in Romans 6, 16 to 23. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm using something that's cultural so you can understand the meaning. Slavery was common in that day. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, in other words, you used to have a master named uncleanness, and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, your body parts, as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things, unrighteousness that is, is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, Guys, let's wrap it up with this. God said it's a sin to be drunk. So he gave you the power to be sober. God said, it's a sin to commit adultery or fornicate, have sex outside of marriage. So he gave you the power to live sexually pure. God said, sin shall not have dominion over you. So he gave you the spirit of self-control. God said, fiery darts are going to come at you, but you by faith can quench them all. God said, the Holy Spirit who is in you is greater than the spirit of darkness that is all around you. And God said, when enemies form weapons against you, they will not prosper. And when the tongues of people speak against you, you shall condemn them since your righteousness is from the Lord. That's Isaiah 54, 17. And listen, the time has come for God's men to walk in the fullness of what Christ died to make them. I don't want to be a wimpy Christian. Do you? I don't want to be somebody that's bullied around by someone of lesser power than me. Listen, the spirit of the living God lives in me. And the devil can't bully me and he can't bully you. He can exploit our weaknesses. He can tempt us. Yet we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who in the temptation will provide for you a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We don't have to give in to temptation because God provided in every temptation a way of escape. And sometimes that way of escape is just good old-fashioned unction of the Holy Spirit and walking in self-control. And listen, the time has come for the men of the church to rise up and rescue those who are drawn towards death and those stumbling to the slaughter. Two of my life verses are Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. We've already been redeemed. We've already been commissioned. We've already been empowered to do so, and we know it, and the time has come for us to turn our knowledge into wisdom and do it. And to focus and make our life purpose the will and kingdom of God. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Who's in? You in? You in? You ready to stand? You ready to stand for the word of the Lord even though it causes division? Even though it divides families? even though that there are difficulties in this life that can come just from naming the name of Jesus Christ, now more than ever in these last days, we see that sort of thing rising up in our own country. Listen, it is a bizarre thing to me today that the most loving and kind and giving and generous people in the world, which is the church, are called bigoted haters because they have a moral stance defined by God. And yet the church has the most... Significant message of hope on the planet today. And therefore, we need to tell the world about our God. And we can't leave out the hard parts. You know who Ray Comfort is? Ray Comfort doesn't shy away from teaching about hell. Because his concept is this, the bad news makes the good news better. (laughs) Bad news is, apart from Christ, you're going to hell. The good news is you don't have to. Because you can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Guys, man, it's time to stand up. Full throttle for God. No holding back. All out, pedal to the metal. I'm running out of cliches here. But we need to be all in. Time has come. Time is short. All the stuff that we seem to be uh, so enamored with in life and the world today, nobody's going to care about it when they arrive home. Nobody's going to give it one thought. When they see Jesus. You know, a lot of times people like to say, you know, you said something about Christians being killed and Jews being killed. And, you know, even today we see ISIS is killing Christians. We see it all over the news. They line them up on the shoreline and they chop their heads off. And, you know, why does God allow that to happen to be so good and loving and kind? Well, let me remind you of something. There is not one martyr in church history whoever upon their arrival in heaven at the moment of their death says, God, why didn't you leave me down there just a little longer? None of them are concerned about the fact that they got their head lopped off. They're in heaven in a new and glorified body. And they're glad to be there. And they're rejoicing and praising God with all the holy angels. So listen, let's not get all hung up on some of the things that are often troubling and trip people up in their thinking. God is good. And that is manifested in the giving of his own son through a demonstrated love to shed his own blood for the sins of the world, including you and me. The time has come, guys. It's time to, long distance runner, kick in. That last little gasp of effort that we saved just so we could finish and cross that line hard, going full throttle, full speed ahead. It's time for us to do that. Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenging things that we find in it. And thank you, Lord, that you don't mince words. You don't try to candy coat. You don't placate. You don't patronize. You just tell it like it is. I want people remembering the great things I've done for them. And Lord, you have every right to give that directive in light of all the wonderful things you have done. He gave us a salvation we couldn't earn or ever deserve. The debt that we had accumulated via our own sin that alienated us from you, you paid in full through the blood of your own son. Lord, we have so many things to be grateful for, so many wonderful works to consider. And Lord, therefore, we agree that the time has come for us to put you first and make your kingdom our top priority. And remember that when we arrive home, we're never going to regret the things that we did for you. It's only the time that we wasted on other things that will be heavy upon our hearts. But we thank you. Even then, you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. All our regrets, all of our sorrows, all the things that caused them will be wiped away forever. But Lord, it's our heart's desire that we finish strong and then we not get pushed around either by a small percentage of our population or by the devil and his minions, but that we would stand up as the men that we are and take our rightful place as leaders in society and proclaim the whole counsel of God to the world that we may not be guilty of the blood of any. Help us, God, not to buy into any of this that's going on today that is diminishing your character and your nature by trying to marginalize, minimize, or simply hide the threat of hell. For, Lord, you've told us in your word time and again that it is a place of eternal punishment for one particular sin, and that is rejecting Christ as Savior and Lord. All other sins you're willing to forgive of all peoples around the world. And for that, we're grateful that you're yet today unwilling that any should perish. But that all would come to repentance. Every Muslim, every Buddhist, every Hindu, your desire is they come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord that they might be saved. Help us to be serious about your will for our lives. We ask this now in Jesus' name. And all God's men said, Amen. Amen. Amen.